Welcome back to the G2V Podcast. This is co-host Arnold T. Blumberg. I'm joined once again by... Scott Woodard. And today we're going to be talking about all things True Blood. That's right. We're going to do bad things to you. We're going to do bad things. (laughs) That's right. And uh, as we're recording this, we are coming up on the uh, Season 5 finale. Or, I'm sorry. Season 6 finale. That's right. it's well. (laughs) There's good reason it's not that memorable. (laughs) Hey! Well, I disagree a little bit on that, but okay. And um, we're going to be looking back at the whole history of the show and uh, what we like about it, what we don't like about it, and particularly some of the things that have been going on most recently in the series. It is indeed coming back for a seventh year next year in 2014. So the show will roll on, but it has gone through some amazing changes in just the last couple of years alone, and that's part of what we're going to be talking about today. I don't know, after this season, knowing that there's a seventh season coming, I swear I've been hearing the peal of a death knell somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, that seems pretty much a given with a lot of television. Though. Seven is kind of the magic number for so many shows. And, like Doctor Who. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a whole other show. Yeah, that's um, a show. But certainly in the, the glory days of all the uh, syndicated Star Trek series, Seven oh, yeah. seemed to really get defined as the number and certainly in terms of contracts for talent and arranging these things, it seems like seven is a reasonable uh, year to hit for amount of episodes and before contract renegotiations starts. I wouldn't be surprised if we find out the next year is the last. I wouldn't necessarily mm-hmm. be heartbroken about it either. I think it's had a good mm-hmm. run. I think, I think it's run its course. It could very well have. But I, I do know for certain, and we've talked about this a little before we began this episode, that uh, we do – differ quite a bit in some of the more recent things happening on the show, but um, I'm not exactly sure where to dive in, except maybe that we should take a look back at where everything began and maybe what got us interested in the first place. Yeah, that's an easy one for me. Uh, My wife actually had read uh, the first couple of novels and she liked it, and she had—I think she heard before I had heard that uh, that they were going to be doing the uh, TV series, but I. You know, I just sort of wrote it off as yet another paranormal romance, so I wasn't that interested. Mm-hmm. But, however, uh, and this is one case where actually I'll I'll support Comic Con, San Diego Comic Con. Uh, we we were uh, we were at Comic Con the year, uh, you know, the year prior to the, the the launch of True True Blood, and we happened to be wandering around downtown one day, one evening, trying to find a place to have some dinner, and we. We're walking by now. Boy, for the life of me, I can't remember the name of the place, but it was sort of a you know bar and grill type affair on one of the side streets. And as we walked by, there was a banner outside, and it had the True Blood logo. Mm-hmm. And of course, Tamara, my wife, she knew what True Blood was from the from the books, and she said, "We got to find out what's going on." And we just walked in, <laughs> and they were this place was hosting sort of this. True Blood thing. This True Blood, uh, it wasn't exactly a party. It was sort of a, I don't know. It, you, you'd walked in and they immediately handed us swag. 
<laughs> our swag, depending on how you pronounce it. Right. And uh, and we ordered some food and, and it was great. But we got a couple of True Blood glasses and we I think we got T-shirts and we got, you know, some posters and all sorts of other good stuff. But there were there was nobody there. <laughs> it was really <laughs> weird. There were like a handful of Comic-Con attendees, you know, holding this stuff in their hands. And then on monitors of the above the bar, they were showing, you know, a little teaser presentation they obviously were showing in hall h uh for the series and i watched it and i thought you know what that looks really really cool but of course the entire time i was sitting there i was asking Tamara for clarification on stuff mm-hmm. you know, who's that what is true blood you know and she was telling me the whole backstory on that and i began to to find myself intrigued so when it we it finally got around to the premiere and of course they had there was a good build-up to it we had seen a lot of little teasers and we were reading magazine articles uh, but when we got to the premiere, we had a little premiere party and we all watched it and I more or less was hooked right from the beginning. And for me, it came just a little bit later because I didn't really start watching until the second season. Oh, okay. And... Which is the main ad season, which wasn't, we can talk about that in a bit, <laughs> yeah. not and, my favorite. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I remember all the build up to the release and like a lot of things. I mean, just in terms of pop culture, I love following stuff, even if I'm not watching it or, or getting invested in it, I remember all the build up to the debut and I was also asking my wife Stephanie had been reading I think she'd read certainly quite a few, if not all, of the Sookie Stackhouse novels by that point and was very much looking forward to it. And she watched the first season and from what I can remember, I didn't but might have been in the room once or twice. <laughs> but wasn't interested. And it wasn't that it and, and I and I will not say that it was that it didn't hook me. It's that I just wasn't paying any attention. I didn't think sort of like you said right at the beginning, I figured paranormal romance, eh, it's probably not gonna be that good. And I didn't even give it the chance. I wasn't paying attention. By the mm-hmm. time it was sticking around and she really wanted me to see it with her, I started watching around season two. Um did not like quite a bit of what I saw, but <laughs> liked a lot of the individual characters and the underlying premise and so much of what was going on that I thought, yeah, there's there's stuff here that's interesting. And by the time you got into season three, uh, which again, another magic number for certainly for a lot of genre television, it's amazing how many shows all of us love so much that you could always make a strong argument that it's season three that becomes the peak and sometimes the only peak in the history of a series. Three seems mm-hmm. to be the perfect amount of time for when creators know their actors well enough to write for them instead of the characters as well. The storylines have matured. Three is just usually a magic time for a lot of these shows. And by the time we got to that, absolutely hooked. And I, I guess I could boil that down to two words, which is Russell Edgington. But <laughs> Yeah, I was just going to say, that was Russell Edgington. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but um but yeah and I and I remember all the build up around San Diego at the time too that may have been what probably around one of the last years I was at San Diego and I remember all the true blood stuff going around I remember piles and piles of true blood postcards laying on the ground on the way from <laughs> uh the restaurants over to the convention center they were really pushing it hard and they knew their audience and yeah. you know it was perfect timing yeah, I wonder if that was the year that – I mean, were you there that year? I wonder if you were busy or something because I'm kind of shocked that you weren't with us to go to that. That was probably that, a year I was there. So Yeah, maybe you were off busy with something that evening or you know, yeah. doing a panel Yeah, whatever. It could be. Or meeting with somebody. Yeah. Because I, I know that uh, we were on our own that, that night. But um, 
certainly one of the things about True Blood that's been amazing has been it's it's certainly played a huge part in mainstreaming horror and that sort of entertainment. Granted, it's an HBO show, and it's one of the shows that in many ways helped to create, I think, this modern era we're in now of a lot of these networks being the go-to place for drama of all kinds, genre drama, you know, real-world set stuff, and establishing that they had as much power that as the networks that we had grown to become accustomed to as the place to go for storytelling. Well, it's not the case anymore. There's HBO, there's Showtime. AMC certainly stepped up to the plate with so many of their shows, whether it's Breaking Bad or Walking Dead or Mad Men. But True Blood was one of those shows, I think, that really helped to redefine where people were going for television. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was um, it's interesting. I mean, we could that that a whole topic for conversation about all the HBO shows and all the the premium cable channels and their programming. But uh, I absolutely agree with you uh, because it seems like around that same time, uh, we, well, they already I think Deadwood was may have still been on the air at that point. And and that was kind of a big deal too. But mm-hmm. I think you know Boardwalk Empire I think launched right around that time as well. Or well, actually, no, it must have been a few a, years later. Bit, yeah, a couple years later. A few years later. Uh, but uh, certainly the momentum was going. But Sopranos, yeah. you know, the, all those. Kind oh, of, of things, course, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just think that now there are so many other shows that have picked up on that energy, and you see so many things coming and going in the last few years. And like we were saying at the top of this, True Blood does seem like it may be close to coming to an end and having run its course a little bit, but it's certainly, you can't ask for more sometimes with a good, particularly with genre television, than to expect a good six or seven years. Sometimes you can't even get three or four. And the fact that they've been able to maintain much of the same cast and keep things going with new ideas and almost reinvent the show in the last couple of years, which has divided people. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it certainly had a good solid run. So, and of course the books have ended too. Yeah. Um, uh, The the final book as we speak is uh, currently still out in hardcover mm -hmm. and uh, that has wrapped up the series. It's done. Yeah. And Charlene Harris, who I think I'm pronouncing her first name, right? Had her name, actually in a recent episode which was kind of a cute little uh, thing where um andy's fairy children where one of them asks for all of them to have names and one of the names that came up was charlene harris's first name so it was a nice little connection to where everything started from wasn't uh, i swear there was uh, another reference to her like Suki was reading one of her other books or something. Could be, and I think she also has made a cameo appearance at least once during the course of the show in Merlots. So there have been a few nods. Not as many as some shows might do, but just a few. Well, and of course it's very tricky because the universes have diverged so much. I mean, the books in the show are completely different. That's, of course, why it just says, you know, based on. Mm -hmm. Uh, In no way has it... I mean, I guess they follow little bits and pieces in each of the books but right. uh, it seems like it's strayed even more i mean for example you know spoiler alert uh, lafayette uh if i remember correctly right. isn't he completely he's killed or something like even in the first or second book right and he's not even part of the storyline that's right in fact wasn't i think he's killed in the the murder spree that is the arc of the entire first season of the show if i remember right i'm sure people who know oh, okay. the books better might know i know stephanie would know 
Um, yeah, and actually, it's funny that you say that because I remember now. I just had a little flash when we were watching that first season. There was a scene where I think Suki came up to a car and there was a dead body right, in it, right. and Tamara, my wife, immediately said, "Oh, it's Lafayette." Right, <laughs> right. And and the interesting thing about that is that this is an example. I mean, that, that's the other thing too, which is it. It brings us to like a larger topic that's also something that we discuss many times over with, with different kinds of subject matter about fandom and how that works when you're connected to different aspects. When one property jumps from one medium to the other, when a book series gets adapted into a television show or into films, there's all that crossover of people who are deeply emotionally invested in that story and those characters. And while plenty of people can enjoy both on their own terms – it's almost inevitable that there's going to be some um, split between the two, and in some cases a really drastic one. And it's just a simple argument. They're completely different media. They require different kinds of approaches to storytelling. I know that sometimes people say that, and it sounds like something of a cop-out. Like it, I've been fans of things where I've said, well, yeah, but couldn't you really have adhered more to the story? Was there a need mm -hmm. to make this and this and this change? But then when you see the way things play out, it's it's also sort of true. A TV show has a different pace. It has different demands stylistically and otherwise. And as you have so many other people, so many other hands involved, it's inevitable that it's going to start to reshape itself into something that's more their idea of what, in this case, True Blood is than what the Sookie Stackhouse novels are. And as long as the original creator is okay with that or the check. Uh, <laughs> I think the check. Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, fans are going to say, well, this isn't as good as that, or I, I like this one or that one. I, with, for in the interest of full disclosure, I have never read a single one of the books, and I consider myself a, a pretty decent fan of the True Blood series. There's been things I've liked and disliked. But for me, it's just a TV show. So I don't compare the two, but I know... That no, same here. I mean, I, I haven't read any of the books, and I don't... Actually, I don't plan on ever reading them. Right. Um, the the show is what I'm watching. Right. Um, and I know I've heard complaints uh, from some people, and I mean, Tamara, not so much. I think she just kind of accepts both of the universes. Stephanie but I have too, very much, yeah. Yeah, but there are definitely people who I've heard complain that the show has strayed too far from the books, but... Sure. You know, so I'd I'd rather avoid that whole issue and just watch the show. I just watch the show. That's really all I'm interested in. If the day ever came where I was interested in the books, that's another whole thing. But I'm not playing the game of comparing the two or trying to hold one up to the standards of the other. So I don't. And of course, I'm already playing that game with in regards to Walking Dead. Oh, okay. Because there's a show. I think, <laughs> yeah, I mean that. I think that was in some ways that just shows that that's that's a mistake. Yeah. To to be a fan of, I mean, it's really tough sometimes to to reconcile both. But it is absolutely. And and some we're talking about True Blood. Yeah, we're talking about True Blood. <laughs> Hi, I'm Keith Ari DeCandido, international best-selling and award-winning author of over forty novels, as well as comic books, short stories, novellas, and more. Also an editor, currently hiring out through Creditorial, a musician, currently percussionist for the Boogie Nights, and a whole lot more. Hear me talk about my writing and my life, and also do readings for my work on my twice-monthly podcast, Dead Kitchen Radio, part of the Chronic Rift Network. For more information, go to chronicrift.com or to deadkitchenradio.mevio.com. I was going to say that there's even quite a bit of uh, controversy even on the book side, and, and I will not offer the spoiler, but in that final book, apparently, Harris has gotten a huge amount of 
blowback on a major plot point in that final book that revolves around Sookie's uh, fate in terms of relationships. And apparently there are a great many people that love the ending, but a great many people that feel betrayed by that ending. So even in the books themselves, there are people that feel there, there's that sense of entitlement that starts to build up in any kind of fan where you feel like, well, the way you want it to be is the way it should be. And that means you can never please everybody. And there are plenty of people that aren't happy with the way it ended. Endings are always going to be tough, though. Yeah, I mean, it's got to end, but no matter you're what, never going to please everybody. No, you can't. Um, it is funny, though, because uh, I was talking to my wife and it was actually, you know, I only heard about how that ended, the controversial ending uh, from you. Yeah. And we were sitting watching, I think we were watching the episode or we we're starting to watch it. And I asked her if she had heard how the series ended and how, you know, what happened in regards to Suki and who she winds up with. Mm-hmm. And that's, of course, you know, that's the big controversy. And I'm not going to give it away. Don't worry. Yeah. But you told me. And when I asked her about it, I said, so take a guess. And she pretty much got it right away. <laughs> she said, she said, well, in the books, that's kind of telegraphed. Interesting. You kind of know it's going to go that direction. So she wasn't surprised and she wasn't that thrown off by it. But now, of course, what I'm wondering is since if it's likely that next year will be the final year, I wonder if they're going to ramp things up to end it that way. Well, they there was there was to, one yeah, scene. Exactly. There was one scene. scene in a recent episode that almost felt to me like a deliberate reference back to that. Yep. In a way of saying, was, oh, here, there are some things that are going to be the same and there's something that. One scene felt to me like there's a destiny here, no matter what medium you're in. And that's but it felt gonna... a little out of place. It did. It almost felt like they said, oh, you know what? That book's out. It's got a controversial yeah. ending. We have got to insert something here that we'll, we'll reference. Well, while to continuing it. to dance around it, because for, <laughs> for some reason we're, we're being spoiler respective uh, yeah, today. I, suppose. Um, I really like that scene because I like the reaction that Sookie got in that scene. I thought mm-hmm. it was a reasonable reaction. <laughs> Yeah, it was like really. Uh, th- that's basically <laughs> summing up that reaction, which I thought, yeah, that's warranted right now. But it did also open a door again that might yeah. have been closed. Well, you said like Tamara was like, yeah, that's kind of telegraph. Stephanie was telling me, however, that that from what she has seen and read online, and uh, she's talked about with other people that are much more deeply invested in the books, there seemed to have been quite a shift in that fandom toward expecting a different result. And uh, so but I'm wondering how is. much of that is based on the influence of the show. Could very well be. Um, I mean, it, well, because TV when you think sh- of it, these characters start to become the actors. Right. And I mean, there's no way I could if I picked up the book, it's books and decided to read them. There's no way that I would picture them any other way other than the way I've, I've you know, other than the actors that I've seen on the show. That's true. And in a sense, that's kind of unfair because that it is <laughs> never really come to those books fresh. But that's what happens, you know, when you when you jump in on a a franchise or a property or a brand that has so many different versions. If you read the books first, I mean, it, it goes back to that general idea of, and I love books. I love reading. I, I teach so much about writing and reading. And, and what I find over the years is sometimes how difficult it is when you're trying to talk about literature and find that everybody's seen the movie first. Yeah, You can't get back to that book with a purity that you could if you went to the book first. So in a sense, you could make a strong argument that reading a book first is better in the sense that it gives you the widest scope for imagination of your own and a chance to find the characters yourself without actors interfering. Mm -hmm. But you can't blame yourself for being interested in the show first either. No. And then going back to it and thinking, well, I'm I'm always going to see, 
you know, Adam Paquin is Sookie and that, and it's, that's just what's going to happen. But I'm, I would think that a lot of people might find uh, the transition from a book to a show or to a film to probably be more disappointing than watching the movie first and then reading the book, though. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Because you, you, like you said, there's so much scope in a book that when you see it reined in, in on TV or on, you know, or on a film that you, you will inevitably feel to some disappointment because well, it's not showing you what the book showed you. Well, I agree with you. 100% in the sense that uh, and and then I guess we'll we'll veer back more specifically to True Blood but it's worth talking about whether it's something like the Harry Potter film series or I remember from years and years and years back Star Trek movies some of the Star Trek movies reading the novels or in the case of Star Trek novelizations always felt like getting DVD extras mm-hmm. something enhanced because oh, that's interesting yeah I and um for this is this is so whole other show. But I'll do this really quickly in one day. One <laughs> for instance, at the height of the Star Trek movies, when I was so deeply invested in things like two and three. If you then read the two and three novelizations, they included whole relationships and subplots that were never in the movies, weren't even scripted to be in the movies, but were added to fill out the novels and did not contradict anything in the films, but gave you an even fuller experience that felt like you were getting more. Now, of course, that's different than what we're talking about, which is if the two versions diverge so sharply that you can't mesh the two. Mm -hmm. And in the case of things like the Harry Potter films, for instance, they were chopping and gutting whole sections of book in some cases to to shoehorn them into film. So you have a very different kind of situation. Yeah. But that's definitely a topic for but another, that's another show. Time. And if you'd like to hear about this topic in a future <laughs> show, please contact us at contact at g2vpodcast.com. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's talk more about True Blood. So um, why don't we talk about some of our high points, some of our favorite characters, things like that. It, top of the list for me, Russell Edgington. Russell Edgington. I think the scene, the scene, where he goes on and 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 unfortunately he's it, it also tied into a couple things that I would then have to immediately complain about sorry but he <laughs> he's absolute genius I knew Dennis O'Hare from years and years ago appearing several times on Law and Order for instance and I remember that whenever we saw him pop up on Law and Order it was like this episode is going to be phenomenal cuz this guy is amazing he did one where he had a, a – I forget what kind of psychological disorder and he was off his medication and his final uh, testimony is him going – completely losing his mind with his sister in the room and, and it's just just magnetic. And then to see him on the show, I was like, I know no matter what this guy does, it's going to be incredible. And on top of it, it not only was, but he was probably the best character they ever had and the scene of him tearing the guy's spine out was <laughs> – <laughs> Not only like the call to arms kind of moment, but like one of those moments where you realize the show has now become – has now achieved a level of pop culture saturation now where it's like this is what everybody's going to be talking about, which unfortunately also dovetails into two other things. One is that they set up a situation with him that seemed absolutely certain to spark – a war between the vampire and human communities that then they decided to seem to back off on completely yeah. and not really fulfill, which was a shame because they had the ultimate warrior at the head there to lead that battle. The other thing was that having very clearly telegraphed the idea that he wasn't completely gone, 
we had a one-year waiting game of, ooh, when are we going to get Russell back? And then we finally did get him back. They spent most of his return wasting him as the comic relief in the background of endless vampire authority scenes. Mm-hmm. And then when they finally decided to have him spring back into action in what I thought was going to be one of the most satisfying moments in the series history, the complete and utter annihilation of that damn fairy <laughs> dance club, they then killed him. Yep. When he's the one that should have been leading the war at, during this entire year that we have now. I think yeah. they completely and utterly squandered him, and it almost felt even more of a slap in the face to bring him back only to misuse him. But yep. at, the, at the point when he was at his height, he was, I think, the best thing on the show. I absolutely agree with you. He was a phenomenal character, um, and it was just an absolute tragedy the way they wiped him out. Uh, and it was interesting, too, because you and I, we were griping the whole time. Every time they would do an episode and he would just be sort of that background creative or creative comedic, uh, com, you know, comic relief. Uh, it was frustrating because you knew that he had such great potential. He was this ancient character who would, you know, order the deaths of Eric's family and all this other wonderful stuff. Mm-hmm. And he just sits there and throws out occasional quips and insults. And then finally has his big breakout, <laughs> yeah. which comes from nowhere, you know, when he's talking in his real accent. But we loved we, that. Yeah, we loved he, it, he and it was great. He slips back into his older self. It's like, okay. <laughs> and and you could, and you were, like, desperate. We were trying to, like, jump through hoops as fans. Well, it's like, okay, he's been biding his time. That's what it's been. Yeah. He's yeah, just yeah, been holding it. back. And now <laughs> it's going to be the Russell show. And, and then it's like, no, not really. No, he goes out and gets killed by fairies. Yeah. Well, by Eric, isn't it? I, I think it's Eric. Oh, well, yeah, that's Eric true. Well, they were all they all blasted him with their yeah. energy. Yeah. He should have become the kind of it, actually Russell should have been in the position that Bill is now in in the show. That's what oh, I yeah. think. Russell should have been the one that drinks Lilith's blood and became the is he the salvation or is he the Antichrist kind of thing that they have going. He would have been the most powerful villain. Yes. The show had ever seen, and he would have welcomed Lilith. Yeah, I think there yes. would have been there would have been no question. Whereas you've got this wishy washy <laughs> battle that Bill is going right. through. Is am I a god? Am I not a god? Who's Lilith? Is Lilith here? What's going on? Uh, but Russell would have just said, "Bring it on!" <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'll take it. Uh, yeah, what a disappointing end for that character. Sophie Ann, have that right. She was another excellent character. And I mean, of course, that also goes back to season three. I mean, we're talking about what was probably the creative peak of the show. Um, And that was also another good character. And I found it was interesting. I I always tended to find that the focus on more of the vampire mythos and their the structure of their underlying community always seemed interesting. And I mm-hmm. always felt I wanted to know a lot more about the authority, but it's probably one of the all-time great fl- fan cliches, which is that you sometimes should not be given what you want. Uh, because when they finally did do <laughs> nothing but the vampire authority, it was like, this is boring. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Can we oh. stop with the board meetings for five <laughs> And they bring uh, on Maloney, who's one of the, again phenomenal actor with a long history on Law and Order Special Victims Unit, and he winds up only hanging around for a few episodes and being probably one of the ultimate vampire killjoys on the entire series. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, in the last year or two things have gone 
more horribly awry. But but which one was Sophie again? She was the queen. Oh yeah, yeah, she was good. Yeah. And uh, and what was sometimes I have just space on character on character names. Um, Bill's old uh, girl girlfriend there. The, oh my uh, god, yeah. Um, the <laughs> I was completely blocking names. I know she was great yeah. too. I liked her a lot. Um, yeah. um, and she had that, that. They had that phenomenal sex scene. We twisted her head. Well, that was insane. <laughs> you know that I and I've often said that I. Um, Oh God, I can't remember. Yeah, I can't remember the name now. Um, and she was great because they. The nice thing also about a show like this, I guess, to step back and say is, it's a show that features characters that have such incredibly rich histories because of the amount of time that they've been around. That that also presents potential problems when dealing with what you know is the reality of making a show. And what I mean is, you can't necessarily keep bringing back people, especially if they have other jobs or they get popular in other things. And the fun about True Blood has always been when you see people pop back up again years later just so they can do a flashback or to reinforce a storyline. And over the years, we've seen quite a bit of Bill's past and his relationship with her. Oh, come on, people. Call in right now. Wait a minute. We don't take calls. Never mind. Um <laughs> Call in right now and tell Check us what, the internet. Uh, what, uh, what her name was. Uh, oh, Lorena. <laughs> oh my God. Lorena. Lorena, okay. Lorena. And you would see her pop up from time to time in flashbacks. And I've always said, I think every time I ever saw Bill and Lorena as they were at the height of their completely investing themselves in their vampire love affair and insanity – I would have liked to just watch that show. <laughs> it was great. You yeah, know, it, their complete lack of morality whatsoever. They're, because let's face it, from the point of view of what they are as creatures, there's nothing wrong with what they're doing. No, they, not at all. They are at the top of the food chain. And every time the two of them were together, it was like, boy, the show with them would be amazing. <laughs> G2B. Do you like movies? Well, let me make you an offer that you can't refuse. Have you ever found yourself standing at the local Cineplex with that smell of freshly buttered popcorn wafting through your nostrils, wondering if that new Hugh Jackman movie is really worth your time? Or have you ever lamented about that time you spent scouring the vast expanse of the internet for movie and DVD release dates when, let's be honest, you'd rather be leveling up your troll hunter, working on the great American novel, or even watching kitten videos? Oh yes, I said kitten videos. I will do the work for you. All I ask is 15 to 30 minutes of your time every Tuesday. My name is Michael Faulkner, and every Tuesday is showtime at the weekly Podioplex. Your audio guide to what's new at the box office, how the top 10 fared over the weekend, and what's coming to your home theater on DVD and Blu-ray. You can find the weekly Podioplex on the Chronic Rift Network at www.chronicrift.com, along with a plethora of other podcasts that explore the culture in pop culture. The weekly Podioplex, brought to you by the Chronic Rift. Thanks for listening. We'll see you at the theater. That's a wrap! Yeah, harken back to um, Angelus from uh, Buffy in you know Angel's previous life. That's right. Whenever they would do their flashbacks and you would see how brutal he was. Yeah. Uh, it had a very similar tone. Which, by the way, I would argue, right, in the, the most recent episode, which I know we'll wind up talking about more in True Blood, which featured the what has amounted to most of the final showdown between the vampires and this latest project really um, 
seriously veering into concentration camp metaphor and symbolism and rounding up the vampires, this latest showdown that's happened, which was filled with carnage. And personally, I always find that no matter how um, human they still are on the inside in terms of humanizing them as characters, the vampire characters seem to work best when they embrace what they are. Mm -hmm. And from the point of view of a fan, in the same way that, for instance, so many people are emotional. I am. emotionally invested in movies like the Godfather movies, and it's often been discussed about how fascinating that is because you're basically rooting for characters that are the killers and the criminals, and yet you're on the family side in a lot of ways. If you're a fan of the show, you're a fan of a lot of these vampire characters, and certainly when the show began, Eric seemed much more of a villain than a hero, but he's evolved and, and become such a popular character. And it seems like the more they behave just as they should, the more interesting they are. Yeah, because, I mean, out of the gate, Bill was essentially the only vampire that we were seeing that had a a morality. Right. Um, And, yeah, Eric was sort of set up as the villain. And then, of course, it was so tragic when they eventually did the sort of (laughs) – when they turned Eric into a pussy (laughs) for a short while. That's right. But I'm and, sure uh, that was very popular with quite a lot of viewers. The the puppy dog Eric just the needed puppy to be dog held. Eric. That's right. Uh, I did not like that. Now, I'll take care of you. Okay. Oh my god. I much more prefer the quippy, smiling Eric who's strutting through that place in that last episode and instructing the vampires to go kill your human captors. Yeah, no, it's that like, was great. That's awesome. That's the Eric that we love. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why. You know, I certainly I count myself in Team Eric, and I think most people do because Bill sucks. But <laughs> I, I, if I had to pick one, yes, absolutely Eric, but only because yeah, Bill has always failed to be have any not kind of weight whatsoever. Not always. Well, I still think when he was king, he was when pretty they damn first cool. made the change over to him being king. I thought, well, for the first time, they've invested him with some kind of sense of weight, and he's doing well. But then, as soon as the Lilith thing came up, he was right back to being useless again yeah and and i thought it was completely uncharacteristic of him and pretty much uncharacteristic of everybody i know they were exploring the whole thing about you know people being overwhelmed by their religion and things like that but it just became a nightmare of a mess as far as i'm concerned that that particular season that stretch but well, maybe we should talk about some other favorite characters because i yeah before we get into that before we get into negative uh, because um I know the one we both agree is one of the highlights of the show is Jessica. Uh, yes, and <laughs> not just not, well, like not that. just for the obvious reasons. Uh, you know, yes. she's very very attractive, of course. Um, but also, you know, she's well. Now, I'm going to have to phrase this interestingly because she began and had development as a great character, but I think this season in particular, she has lost that character. I agree completely. And I don't know what they're doing with her at this time. (laughs) I feel that one of the things that has been great about Jessica was it was a chance to see what happens to a human being. Not that they hadn't explored it in other ways, but she was the best character for exploring how you cross over from human to vampire, what that means... And and things that made her an exceptionally tragic figure, like the relationship with Hoyt, um, which, by the way, losing him completely has been, I think, one of the big missteps of the show. Mm-hmm. He was one of like yeah. the, the, the hearts of the show. And I mean that in the pure emotional sense. Um, 
that it's although they dragged it out too long yeah yeah um and not her vulnerability the really creepy and unnerving thing that i in fact i was always saying to stephanie why they dropped it that thing that she was a virgin and therefore oh, yeah. that physically every time she has sex since she regenerates as a vampire, it's always the first time. Yeah. I thought that was such an incredible idea. It's an incredible idea. And then I thought – and then after a while, it seemed like she was really active. And I thought, it, have we gotten past that? Did that stop? Because <laughs> it seems like isn't that something that would continue to drive you crazy that that happens or you just get used to it? And I did think it was interesting that most recently when, when she had that scene with James – uh, and they were about to almost be forced to have sex for Sarah Newland's group, for the governor's group there. Jessica actually referred to the fact, she said something like, it's going to feel like it's the first time, but it's not, or something like that. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's obviously still the case. So with that and so many other aspects, she's just such a sweet character, someone who hadn't lost being a young woman and yet was dealing with being a vampire. And one of the best in a weird way, I, I'd say one of the best audience identification characters you could get in the whole show. Right. Because they're really, as many people have complained about True Blood, one of the things about True Blood is over the years it has become so filled with paranormal characters of every kind that where do you turn for the audience identification and the anchor of humanity? Not many places. Jason's one of them. But then again, as endearing as he can be, he's deliberately played up sometimes really excessively as being stupid. And therefore, there's Mm -hmm. only so far you can really identify with him unless you're stupid, I guess. But well, and to extend that a little bit uh, in the books, of course, Jason is aware of Jaguar. Exactly. And they sidestep that. (laughs) And then Jessica, despite being a vampire, felt like one of the most human characters. And one of where Panther. Sorry. Yeah, that's right. And um, and I agree with you completely. One of the things I, I find most awful about the current season is that they have seemed to go out of their way to undercut almost everything about Jessica that was lovable and endearing by turning her into a different character. Someone mm-hmm. who, uh, first of all, the, the fairy um, slaughter. Killing the girls, right. Yeah, seemed completely bizarre. Not that the rules of this universe don't suggest that that could happen. You know, if you go, the frenzy could happen. But then her exceptional throwback to believing in God and and wondering if Bill is God. And then for me, the weird breaking moment where she asked Jason to put her in a room with the vampire James that she desperately wanted to have sex with for no apparent reason. And then asked Jason, who she supposedly still loves and was involved with, to just stand outside the door while she does that was so heartless, such a cold thing that doesn't seem remotely right. It's like she's not the same character. But you could say that about a lot of them this year. A lot of them feel like they're not the same character anymore. Right. And and it was interesting, too, because uh, there was uh, the moment where Jason sort of realized that he had been in that, you know, frenzy anti-vampire thing. Right. And was going back to Jessica to basically right. express his adoration for her. And then this whole goes down right i swore i'll have to bleep that (laughs) (laughs) that's all right so you know everything goes down and uh um it's just so weird now i wonder how much of this that we're seeing in terms of characters being so different also has to do with the fact that we should point out that after years and years of alan ball being the uh central creative force driving the show showrunner this season has seen not one but two replacements of showrunner during the course of 
the year and this season in particular doing what amounted to almost a mid-season fix as they shifted from one to the other, mm -hmm. uh, which was really bizarre. And if you, and I don't have all the details in front of me, but if you read it, it's also fascinating. Anybody that's so interested, as we often are, anybody that's so interested in the behind-the-scenes stuff about how this works as both a business and, and how that affects the creative side, which is just you can't separate the two. It's not just pure storytelling. You know, unfortunately, business and money has a lot to do with it. It's a fascinating story in itself because for some reason when they switched showrunners, they gave the showrunner job to someone who had only joined the show a couple of years ago instead of the guy that apparently everybody on the show expected would get it who had been there since day one hmm. and basically put him under this newer guy. Wow. And then shortly into this season, handed it over to that guy that everybody figured was the heir apparent and kicked the other guy out. Yeah, it's funny to note, I mean, you could probably spot exactly when that transition happens because you do see those odd character issues like Alcide and how strange he was behaving right. as a pack leader. And now all of a sudden, that's the old guy again. Right. Yeah. He's nice again. <laughs> He's moved on. He to apologizes the pack. to Sam. You know, all that stuff I was doing, that was some other showrunner, man. <laughs> I don't know what the that hell was that was. Someone else about. at the top. Wasn't it the pack? No, it wasn't the pack, man. Yeah, whatever. It's different scripts. I don't know. <laughs> We're still buddies. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, all right. You ever show your face and, and all yeah, comp again when you're dead? Oh, hey, Sam, let's have a drink. <laughs> let's have a drink. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, there's so much stuff in this season that's so problematic. Sam losing what was built up so strongly as like, certainly if not the, since Sookie, I guess, is technically the A love of his life with Luna and, and the little girl that he had become so invested in helping to protect and then the body is barely cold before he's just jumping in bed with yep. this girl that he met two minutes ago. And it's like, yeah. Luna who? I guess. It's like, leaves, her, leaves her dead on the ground and walks away and jumps into bed with this other girl. Yeah, and it's like, mm, that's not, you know, cause, and, and I guess that gets us back to something else in general that we should talk about, which is how much this show is also driven by sex and occasionally also how much fun that is to see them <laughs> I mean, and i mean really to see the mix of horror and sex which particularly in american entertainment is often so much more of a taboo you can you can kill a person a thousand different ways but show them enjoying each other's presence and that's a problem and right. and true blood blends horror and sex and in the and comedy and comedy there are a lot of laughs in that show and that's one of the reasons stuff. it works um very often time to completely balance some of the most outrageous uh violence and stuff that happens and then we'll have a comedic note to it at the same time and of course it's one of the ultimate express i think true blood's one of the best versions of vampires have always been directly associated with sex metaphorically and it's just such a a great opportunity and hard to talk about all that and it's interesting also the twilight books not to not to knock something else down that doesn't necessarily deserve to be knocked down in this context. I show. cannot believe we're actually talking about them on this podcast. Well, I have to mention them because okay. they wrapped up in 2008. They eventually went into film, but True Blood debuted in 2008. Mm -hmm. And many people who got involved and interested in True Blood, some of whom were interested in both, which is something that occasionally breaks my brain because I can't believe that can be reconciled. Uh, <laughs> I remember a lot of articles referring to True Blood as, and, and cheekily, since it also refers to the drink, remember, of the artificial blood drink. True Blood is your antidote to Twilight. 
Mm. And they are opposite sides of the coin. And Alan Ball was famously quoted as saying that he did not understand the concept of using the vampire as a symbol for abstinence because a vampire is all about sex. Mm -hmm. And that's what True Blood really deals with on a regular basis. And sometimes not sometimes in what you could say is an exploitative way, but very often one of the things I think you and I have often talked about is there are a lot of shows and a lot of movies where this happens and you think, oh, they're just throwing this in for no reason. It's just titillating. And in True Blood, you all... Game of Thrones. <coughs> yes, <Sorry>. exactly. <laughs> That's right. Um, and yet in True Blood, you often feel like it actually emerges out of, the, out of the context of the storytelling and the character. And it makes sense when it happens. Mm-hmm. And that's not just pure exploitation. It's about actual storytelling. I mean, sometimes it's just for fun. But... <laughs> yes, <laughs> it certainly is. But that's one. But I was just thinking about the. You had a great phrasing when we were talking about an earlier episode where <laughs> Jason was having sex with Sarah Newland. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, you cracked me up so much when you described that scene. I can't. I can't remember what I said <laughs> now. Oh, you were just talking about how there was like a very slow little build up when she went back to Jason. Oh, yeah. yeah. And you said, and then there was just a cut. And the next thing you see. <laughs> I got to hear because I don't remember it now. Oh, God. You just said, next thing you see is Jason. <laughs> Jason's just plowing it. <laughs> That's right. And the phrasing was just, um, <laughs> it was so extreme that it killed me. Well, it was extreme. <laughs> it was an insane shift in tone. She's like, hi, Jason. Remember me? Yeah, I'm in a cut. place <laughs> now, and I don't feel the same way. And it's like, we're supposed to be together. Cut. <laughs> Freight train. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. But it was storytelling. Is what yeah, there you go. It was very important. It was yeah. very important. Well, I mean, it was one of those scenes, of course, that when it happened, I think even uh, my wife even said something like, oh, Jason, you know, (laughs) I mean, we do expect this of you. But then again, they were sort of developing the character, showing that he was becoming a little bit more sensitive and kind of that was less important in his life. Nah, Sarah Newland shows up and all hell breaks loose. Well, that's another literally. Thing, that's another thing though, which is that uh, oh, we do have to talk about the fact. I do think she's become one of the best villains they've ever had. Two longtime fans of two bionic shows discuss an episode in detail every two weeks. Cyborgs, a bionic podcast. Find us at chronicrift.com slash cyborgs or subscribe on iTunes. She's done a great job of stepping in and sort of being a villain, but not, not given enough time to really develop that way. But once they shifted it to her, I think she's done a yeah. nice job. But the Jason thing is also an example of how a show unfortunately gets to this point after years, which is almost every television show, I can't think of many that avoided it, wind up becoming parodies of themselves or at least more caricatured versions of themselves as they go on. And one thing that's also been interesting, particularly this year, is the show is at least aware of it enough. I can't remember specific examples now. There have been at least several moments where the show has made obvious meta jokes 
about their own characters mm-hmm. and their tendency. I know that Sookie has now become basically a walking meta joke about how she's constantly referencing the stupidity of her past relationships and how everything is always the same for her. And, and that's both funny sometimes, but also shows that they're kind of caught in a cycle where the characters don't develop at all. Yeah. So like the choice then as a writer is, well, do we, do we just keep doing that or do we at least make a joke about the fact that they're not changing? And that's, I guess their solution for that is make a joke about it. But I guess that gets us back to something we said off mic, which is um, the show is ostensibly about Sookie Stackhouse, at least in the sense that she always seemed to be the lead. And although it's an ensemble piece and we have a lot of storylines every year, it always seemed like she and at least initially her relationship with Bill was the anchor point of the entire show. I can't say there's ever been a time in the entire history of the series since I started watching where I ever liked her enough to care about her as a lead. No. And as the show has developed, I found her to be less and less appealing, more and more aggravating. And also, as, a, as you and I have both talked about, it's almost like less and less ability as an actress as the show has gone on. Her acting keeps getting worse. I don't know if it's because she's a mom now and her mind is elsewhere and she's just focusing on other, other things. But, yeah, it seems like this season in particular, she is just phoning it in. Yeah. But again, you're also having to deal with the whole fairy subplot, which is another thing I think is a big negative in that show. Yeah. It's never been realized in the in the way it should be. I mean, my, my understanding is that in the books, it's a lot more interesting. Yeah, yeah. But as soon as they brought in chandeliers and the Moulin Rouge in the middle oh, of a field, that's, I mean, it's yeah. just not, not good. I mean, I couldn't wait for the day when Russell was going to tear through that place and murder everybody. And <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, that just didn't work out the way it should have. Yeah, I don't um, know who was enamored of that whole subplot. Who, Maybe Alan, I don't know. Who were some of the other characters over the years that we thought were actually not not good? Some of the, the well, we could have done without it. There have been moments in the show over the years where I've certainly felt like entire storylines where as soon as we shift to that storyline, I'm looking at my watch waiting to get back to... Mm-hmm. something else well i've no, i mean i've i've grown weary of tara to to be perfectly honest she hasn't been in it much this year i know and i think maybe that's because they just don't really have much to do with her i thought that her becoming a vampire was probably one of the most interesting things they had done with her and really seemed to revitalize her character and the relationship mm-hmm. with pam I, was I was fun and it was interesting and then they just stopped using her yeah but she kind of – she was sort of a little bit of a roller coaster right there too because in the beginning I liked her. Then she became kind of annoying. Very. And then she turned against everybody. Mm-hmm. I mean it's just as things went on. So yeah, the when when they finally did make her a new vampire, I thought, oh, that's kind of cool. That revitalizes things. And and I did really like, – like you just said, I loved the relationship between her and Pam. It almost was like an opportunity to thaw Pam mm-hmm. in a way well, that we'd never by seen. The way, by the way – Pam is another character who is still one of my favorites. Yeah, yeah. But I really think she's been let down this season as well. I think uh, I just don't think they're developing anybody this season. No. Or if they are, they're doing it wrong. But previous seasons, Pam has always been a hoot. She's mm-hmm. just a great character. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Tara went from okay to annoying to very interesting to invisible now. To a background character. Yeah, which. Um, and I have to say, to be perfectly honest, although there are elements of it, 
that I've certainly been fine with over the years. I usually find that whenever we switch to anything related to the shifters or the werewolves, I'm waiting for us to get back to other stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, not that there haven't been elements of those storylines that have been interesting, but it. Boxed. Yeah, I mean, I think when they when they did explore the the packs and everything in the previous seasons, um, in regards to Luna and all that, I thought that was actually pretty good. Uh, but certainly this year, it's it was almost a cartoon. Well, I think a lot of that also might come down to what we talked about before too, which is what seemed like an extraordinarily uh, misjudged reinvention of Alcide's character, yeah. which came out of nowhere. And I remember Stephanie telling me a few times, and this is a great example of how things could make sense more if writers of the show or whoever is involved make an effort rather than just let things happen. Like Stephanie mm-hmm. said several times, well, he did become Packmaster and he had to eat the flesh and all that, and so maybe this has affected him. Maybe what we're seeing is he's become... Um, psychologically affected, maybe even altered by taking on the role that it has a physiological effect as well. And so he's become like this alpha wolf in a way he wasn't before. And I said, fine, but if that's the case, we need to be shown that or it needs to be made clear in the story that that's what happened. It should not be my responsibility to sit home and come up with an explanation for why this character has gone off the rails. If you intended to make that a reason, you need to provide the reason. Yeah, there was no transition at all, right. and he never was fighting against it. At no point did he just say, I'm Packmaster now, and things have to change, and I, I'm sorry about that, but this is the way it is. It was just sort of, hey, I'm LC and now I'm a jerk. And, <laughs> and Robert Patrick was really cool at his father last year, and then I was really interested when they said he was becoming a regular this year. I'm not sure what regular means, though, because although they added him as a regular, he's been in about as much of the show as he was last year. It's not like they... Tiny cameos, Yeah, it's not like they used him at all. I guess what regular was just saying, give him a bigger check maybe, which is fine. (laughs) But the weird thing... Good for him. Yeah, that's fine. But, you know, but the thing is, I liked him. And every time he turned up has actually been interesting. And to me, his presence only served to throw into sharper relief what dick else has become. Yeah. I know they have the whole long relationship. I know fathers and sons. I mean, my God, there's a whole other thing for multiple shows probably one of the most potent themes particularly in american media are stories about fathers and sons it's amazing how consistent all that stuff is but when you get past that all you see throughout this season in particular is his father constantly reaching out to him and offering really well-reasoned advice and attempts to be connected to him again and alcide always responds with ah go to hell yeah and it's like, can't you soften for five seconds? <laughs> the man's trying to say something, and and it just and now he shows up at the funeral, and he's Alcide again. Mm-hmm. Oh, hey, sorry about all that. Um, but well groomed, wearing a suit, oh, looks fine. Okay, we might as well get to this because if I had to make a list of characters I cared least about through the entire history of the series, I am sure that at the top of that list meaning characters I cared the least about, would probably be Terry. And this, I think, speaks to something very deep about the show in general, bits of which we've already talked about. This is a show that, on the one level, is about serving that need that we all have as genre fans to see some fun vampire stuff, and it's got the sex and the carnage and all these wild characters. But it's set in a small community, 
in which you still need to have anchors. You still need human characters who have not been directly touched by any of this or altered, in other words, still human, in order to identify. That's why I said earlier it's kind of interesting that Jessica herself seems to be one of those characters because although she's a vampire, it's like she's still very human until they screwed her up this year. Terry's one of the few characters on the show, like Arlene, who remain human and therefore should be anchors. And yet I've never really cared about him. He's never really played much of a role except being the guy on the side who's Sam's buddy and Arlene's husband. And I think one of the worst storylines they've ever done in the history of the show is when we found out that he was cursed and they did the whole thing last year that, Uh, yeah, yeah. terrible. Just, I mean, it had things to say. I'm not, I'm not trying to say it doesn't have, it was was trying to say something Mm -hmm. about war and violence and our role in the world. I mean, if you really want to look at it metaphorically, it had things to say just as a story though, it it didn't play out well. It was kind of boring. It, it anchored on a character. That's not one we ever really got that invested with to begin with. And yet, yeah, I was going to say, and unlike a lot of plots, it's not one that you would immediately start discussing if somebody asked you about high points in the show. Right. Absolutely. And then this year, you figured, well, that part's over. And instead, they continued to harp on it with it hanging on him to the point where he orchestrates his own death, where he wants to kill himself and can't. And so figures out a way to do it using an old military friend who will do it for him. And I think, first of all, I think, first of all, the actual death of Terry in the show, that Arlene and the others came up with a solution for him that I'm surprised they didn't come up with years and years ago, which is having a vampire wipe his memory of everything bad and then having him die was one of the most beautifully tragic things I've ever seen done. It was like the timing was absolutely perfect for maximum tragedy. Someone whose life made complete and utter sense to them now and was all about happiness and that's when he goes. And that I liked. And then this most recent episode was an episode about, well, on the it was two plots. One was the complete takedown of the vampire camp by Eric and all the now fairy blood um, uh, infused vampires as they take their, their freedom back, intercut with Terry's funeral which also featured a lot of flashbacks with some of the Bon Temps regulars as we see some of the things that happened when Terry came back home from the war. This episode has apparently divided people drastically. Most interestingly, it's divided you and me, <laughs> uh, where we often agree on a lot of things. I thought, and as Stephanie and I are watching, Stephanie agrees on a lot of this, I thought this was one of the strongest episodes of the year because one of the things that it did was, again, I don't care about Terry. I never did. But to me, it's not that it was about Terry. It was about the fact that the show has gone so crazy over the years that in some cases it's lost its heart. It's lost its center. And by having a character so blank die, it provided an opening, an opportunity to bring the entire Bon Tom community together to show how this community has stayed together and had these relationships in the midst of all this craziness in a world that's gone completely insane. They are still the community they used to be, and they still all love each other. 
And so much of what happened in that funeral sequence I thought was beautiful character-building moments about this one guy may not mean anything to us even, even if you don't care about Terry as a character. It's about the fact that everyone in town was connected to him, and they're connected to each other, and that life matters, which is the theme of the whole episode. And meanwhile, on the flip side, you're seeing the vampires tearing people to shreds for trying to eliminate them. And I just think there was so much heart to this episode mixed with some of the craziest carnage they've ever done. And I know you feel very differently. G2V. Greetings. I'm Kevin Lauderdale, and the name of the show is It Has Come to My Attention. Once a month, I spend just a few minutes drawing your attention to genre-related things that may have slipped under your geek radar. Classic movies finally out on DVD or Blu-ray, not-so-well-known books, audio, graphic novels. Not the sort of stuff you'll see on Amazon's front page, but the sort of treasures that are buried several clicks in under the recommendations carousel. About half the time I mention things for proper geek parents put into the hands of proper geek kids. And sometimes I even do a funny voice or two. All of this for free as part of the Chronic Rift Network, available on iTunes and at chronicrift.com. Yes, I do feel differently. Um, and again, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll agree with you on, on certain points. I think uh, Terry was an inconsequential minor character. Um, I think the, uh, the, the whole demon smoke fire monster thing was an irrelevant, uh, the gene, whatever it was, the gene, wait, wasn't that the genie or whatever, yeah. uh, was, a, was a completely useless storyline. Yep. Uh, and the reward of that was very nice where that got resolved and Terry moves on and out of everyone in the town, as you said, uh, there's a little bit of hope and happiness here. Mm -hmm. So when suddenly the PTSD rears its ugly head once more and out of the blue, he just decides, I think I want to off myself. When that scene was first presented, it just made no sense other than the fact that you could just say, okay, well, clearly this guy is is scarred forever and there's nothing you can do, even defeating his actual demons. Mm -hmm. uh, that was, I had an issue with that. Then when they finally do kill him, I thought, okay, well, you know, that was horrifically tragic. Let's deal with uh, the, the, the follow-up of that in, a, in one more episode and move on. But they dragged it out. And then the funeral comes around, which basically turns into a let's see how many old actors we can drag into this scene to you know make, show a bunch of faces and, and revisit some characters and have weird little references to Hoyt and such. Uh, and just have – I mean I, un I understand what you're saying and I do see and I do agree with you that one was a celebration of a life and the, and the other storyline is obviously an embrace of, of death and carnage. Uh, that in itself is is was well done, but I just thought they maybe went too far with it. And it, every time they would cut back to the funeral, I wanted to be out of the room. I just I had had enough. And when they were doing these flashbacks for stuff that, as far as I'm concerned, were completely irrelevant, I really didn't need to know that how Terry and Sam met. I didn't need to know, you know, more stuff about uh, the little camp uh, that uh, that they have, Andy and he have. Uh, I mean, that stuff was already telegraphed. We already knew all that stuff about Terry's background. So for me, it was a bit of a disappointment. Um, and that's, I mean, I don't know what else I can really say about it. No, that's all fair. I mean, I don't think I can be convinced that that was a good thing. Oh, I would never try to convince you. I, I mean, that's, that's, there's no point in trying to convince you. You, you, you mm -hmm. feel the way you feel about it. I, and, and 
I've uh, I was telling you before we started the show, I've read a number of reviews on the internet that um, go to either one of the two extremes that that either agree with you and say actually that I think are much more extreme than what you're saying. Mm-hmm. That really feel that this was like oh I'm done with this show completely now. I know you're kind of on the cusp, you know, like well it's <laughs> on it's coming to an end. But they're even more vehement about it, about how awful yeah, it the, was. Yeah, the IO9 article in particular. Yeah. Was, uh, um, but then I've read. I mean, it had pros and cons, but. Yeah. And then I've read quite a few that saw it the way we were seeing it that night, which was like, it's, the sh- it's not about Terry. Even the flashbacks, I would argue, they're not about Terry. Like, one of the, some of the stuff that I read was like, well, like you just said, too, it's like, I don't care how he met Sam. Yeah, but. It's not about that he how he met Sam. It's about the fact that in the midst of all these characters that we've spent so much time with who are nuts, there's still a little town there with people that are human, that are connected to one another in profound ways. And that little meeting scene with them fishing, I thought was just such a beautiful little heartfelt thing because there's no vampires. There's no craziness. There's no supernatural. It's guys who live in this little town and how they saved somebody's soul for at least a little while. And it had nothing. And of course, yes, Sam's a shifter. So something supernatural is going on in there. At least he's standing there. But it it was I think it was more about reinvesting in all of the connections that this town has and how a town like that could survive the lunacy that has descended upon them. And. In a way, that's well, that's kind of what the show ultimately was at the beginning, wasn't it, too? I mean, like, what happens to this quintessentially Southern American town when all this crazy stuff happens? They still stay the same town. Mm-hmm. But and, and I thought this was an and, – and just to add one other little thing about it, maybe slightly – my impression of it was slightly influenced by the fact that one of the things this new showrunner actually said was that they were quite deliberate at the end of this year about wanting to reinvest in their human characters, that they felt the show had become so filled with supernatural beings that they needed that core back again to reinforce that Bontomp is still there as a community. That really screams out loud when you watch that episode. And maybe, like you said, for some people that doesn't that isn't that didn't work. It went too mm-hmm. mu- it went too long. Uh, they dragged it out too much. Maybe they were so concerned about that that they lost their way in terms of really reining it in. Maybe the funeral thing could have just been a quarter of the show, a half. Um, maybe. Well, and another thing that that drove me absolutely bonkers about that the funeral scene was that the town has, with for very few exceptions, most people know that Sookie's a little bit of a weirdo. Yeah. But for her to step up and say, "Hi, I'm a telepath," I like in front of all these people. I it's like, like that. What? I see. I hated that because the, all that <laughs> Isn't would it happen about is time? that. Well, yeah, but ninety percent of the people would be like, "And she's a lunatic," <laughs> because nobody believes in telepathy. But in that show, we know there are vampires. We know there are right. We know there are vampires. That's that's a public thing. Yeah. But they keep the werewolves hidden. They keep shifters hidden. Uh, the whole point of Lafayette being able to talk to the dead, nobody knows about that except for about six people. And for her to just say, "Hi, I'm a telepath. I read people's minds." <laughs> It's like, what? Are you crazy? Get that girl off the freaking podium. Well, apart- I just thought that was stupid. Well, apart from the fact that I still think she's terrible in the show, I like that. Hi, I like I'm that. a telepath. I think y'all know I'm a telepath. I think y'all know. No, we don't. <laughs> no, we didn't know we, that. We know you're a freak. That's about it. 
Oh, See, I, I like the. I also like the little gesture that she was listening in on Arlene. And knew that she wasn't ready to step up, so she was going to step up and and give her a few extra minutes. Well, that's cute, but that's between her and Arlene. <laughs> and Arlene it should remain between her and Arlene. Don't right. bother just, us with it, this. It's just so strange. I mean, why didn't Sam then step up and say, "Hey, I can turn into any animal." <laughs> And Terry was a nice guy, and he used to make good Hey, wait a minute there, Sam. Name's Al Seed. Y'all know. <laughs> I'm a pack master I werewolf. wolf, and I run an entire pack. Yeah, well, that didn't happen. <laughs> so all we basically got was a lunatic who stepped up and said, I'm a telepath. And then Sam turns into a horse, and he... <laughs> and they ride off together. They ride off, and everybody just sits there stunned for five minutes. <laughs> then Lafayette stands up and says, y'all know I can hear everybody in this... <laughs> These bitches uh, shut up. <laughs> oh, well. And, well, we can agree to disagree. End, and that's fine. And then the end title card appears. <laughs> <laughs> We're done with True Blood now. That's it. Oh, uh, well. It's all right. They all can't hit it out of the ballpark. Well, Unfortunately, I think most of this season has not been hitting it out of the ballpark. Oh, I, think so. that, I think this year has been horribly uh, uneven. Yeah. Um, and there and while there have been things to enjoy an occasional episode. And the thing is, I remember we talked about this, too, although this one was one you felt that about. Um, I think it was actually the episode with Jason and Sarah Newland, the one where they were doing the, the flowering <laughs> scene. Um, I think it was that episode that I told you afterward that we were watching it. And, now, and like about halfway through the episode, I, I turned to Stephanie and I said, you know, I think I might be just about done with this. Mm-hmm. Like there was yeah, I remember. I think you told me that. There was yeah. something so horribly off about every single thing in that episode. There was like, I don't recognize anybody in it. None of the stories were making any sense. I think I might give this one more week, and then if not, I just think I'm kind of done. And the next week was pretty good, and I thought, yeah. okay, I'll stick with it. But it it but that just shows it's a show that is going swinging wildly in terms yeah. of quality of storytelling from week to week. And certainly you can argue that back in, like, Series 3... Oh, here's one. What did you think of Marnie in that year? Oh, I, I liked her. I thought it, she was great. I loved that year and that storyline, too. Mm-hmm. It didn't... Yeah. It certainly... It was the one to follow Russell, which, of course, is the slot that no one would want. You know? Yeah. Like, how do you match up to that? Well, you can't. But personally, I thought the whole Marnie storyline was a great new way in. And she was great. She was I thought she was exceptionally good. Fantastic. So yeah, I and I've read a lot of people that hated it. Yeah, I know. I know pre- people personally who have flat out told me they thought that was a terrible storyline, but I really, really liked yeah, it. Yeah, no, I I liked it a lot. So I guess you could argue that maybe both of us feel that seasons three and four are probably when it was at its best. Mm-hmm. Um, and and certainly last year was was just filled with so much that was boring and, and bogged down all the vampire authority stuff. And then this, oh, yeah. this year, just so uneven. And yet I would say an improvement over last year, but I think you would say this is worse than last year, right? I think so. Yeah. I mean, it just, it just was, it's been a misstep from the beginning and it's, I, I just don't know if it's found its feet yet. Yeah. And I, it's too late. And of course it's a truncated season. It's only 10 episodes. All the previous seasons have been 12 episodes. I thought this one was twelve. It's only ten. It's only ten. Only ten. Last time che- last I checked, because this coming Sunday is the final one, and yeah. I think it's the tenth. One of the things that I think has always been one of my favorite things about True Blood as a show in general has actually been its title sequence, which was uh, produced separately, 
different production company put that together. Um, certainly created an instant signature sound with Jace Everett's song, Bad Things. And despite the fact that the names have changed occasionally as far as cast, it's also one of those rare things where you see met too many shows sometimes come up with a great title sequence and then keep tinkering with it. And in this case, it stayed more or less the same all of these years. Of course, who knows what might happen next year. But it's one of the most distinctive elements. And I know we've talked about this at least once or twice already in the short course of our show. But one of the things that I've always really respected is the whole era that is largely dead now of title sequences on television shows because they're your airlock into the experience of watching the show. It transports you into that world. It's not just about showing you who makes the show. Obviously, that's the point. But if it's done well, it's also about setting up the atmosphere, dialing up your mood or dialing down your mood, depending on the show, creating the feeling that is then going to lead into the storytelling. And True Blood has one of what I think is the greatest title sequences on a show in recent years. And is quite a little piece of artwork in and of itself and encompasses so much imagery that instantly tells you everything you need to know. Even though not a single one of the main characters, no montage from episodes, there isn't anything in that title sequence that actually appears in the series technically. It's a standalone piece, and yet it creates the mood and style that instantly identifies what the show is. And, and to be honest, really, there's only one thing in there that really links to the show, and that's the God Hates Fang sign. Right. Right. Exactly. So you know that it exists within that world. Right. Everything else just is random images of, you know, weird Southern stuff. Southern stuff, stuff that um, the the blend of sex and religion, the the intersection of birth and death and the cycle of life. And there's a, a, a girl that appears throughout the title sequence, this really hot girl dancing and, you know, and and shorts and everything. And then you see that juxtaposed with scenes of these women fervently praying. And I think it's Stephanie. I'm I'm going to credit my wife with this and uh, she'll correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Stephanie's one that told me once years ago or like a year or two ago, she loves watching the title sequence because in her mind, she's decided that one of the women you see praying at one point is the mother of the girl that you see dancing in the title sequence. Interesting. Because her idea is that her mother is a strict incredibly religious woman who's praying for the soul of her daughter who we see quite <laughs> obviously is living a different lifestyle and she's read that whole little extra storytelling into that but I think <laughs> now when i watch it i always see that and, and see those two are actually characters that are having oh, this whole great. little story to the side but it's you know it is it's a dying art the art of the title yeah. sequence and true blood does it beautifully well, I mean, I think the HBO in general has been do- always yes. embraced elaborate title sequences. Yes, and I will say we did uh, make a brief mention of Game of Thrones a while ago. That's <laughs> that's also a show that does a phenomenal title sequence, like two minutes long. Yes, it's beautiful. It's got a great theme. Dun, 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 one of the dun, dun, really great dun. television <laughs> themes, I think, one right now. And then as soon as the theme and title sequence is over, I can then go watch something else. <laughs> So as we record this, we're coming up to the season finale for this year. We don't know where it's going to go, although what's interesting is, as they've often done in the past, and I'm not entirely sure I agree with this kind of logic. We see this in a lot of shows where they tend to resolve all the major elements of a year-long story arc in the penultimate episode and then spend the next one basically setting up cliffhangers for the beginning of the next thing. 
Right. I'm not entirely sure I like the rhythm of that. That, that <laughs> seems to be pretty much given. That's their thing. Yeah. yeah. So that means that next week it's going to be probably more of a, okay, well, let's take stock. And then all of a sudden a few bizarre things are going to happen in the last two minutes and the titles are going to crash in and be like, okay, we'll see you next year. And, um, I obviously we have no real idea where they're going with any of this. I should also I'm, mention. Uh, oh no, go ahead. I was just going to say I just uh, I'm disappointed that we're already this far into it with one more episode to go, and that whole Lilith garbage hasn't been resolved. Right. And, and I'm so I'm done with that already. I don't want that sense. to drag off into another season. Never made any sense at all. Nope. No. I was going to say one of the interesting things was that going into this year, there had been a very powerful rumor going around that Eric was going to be killed off. Yeah. And unless something really strange happens in the last episode, that does not appear to be the case. Well, it has been a guessing game all season because they did tease that somebody major was going to die, and I assume that was just Terry, so not really that major. Yeah, exactly. But I know for the longest time it was, you know, I kept thinking, oh, they're going to kill Eric, they're going to kill Pam, Mm -hmm. they're going to kill Tara. So they've been, in a weird way, they they handled that pretty well. Yeah, there was that episode where Eric and Pam wind up in sort of like the Thunderdome. And I thought we were leading to the obvious, which was Eric telling Pam, you have to kill me. Mm-hmm. and letting her do it so and 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 very often you find yourself i know you we've talked about this too sometimes you find yourself writing things that just feel like they're better than the way <laughs> <laughs> i think you do that with most shows i, know, I know the fans feel like oh yeah you think you got a better idea why don't you... i'm gonna do some fanfic right to write it but yeah but <laughs> it was interesting i i think one of the big missteps of this past episode was jason being a complete idiot and not putting a bullet in sarah newland when he had the chance that was stupid. That was not the time to suddenly develop a sense of mercy. And I don't want to see her return. I think we're done with that character, too. Which I can only hope will be resolved but, next week. Yeah, I hope so. But, uh, yeah. But we did. I do have to talk about my one, my favorite line from the entire previous episode. Okay. You know what it is? I think so. I assume it also involves a Newland. Yes. <laughs> I loved you, Jason Stackhouse. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was on the floor. I laughed so Which hard. Which he's screaming up at his <laughs> wife while he's doing yeah. it. <laughs> it was beautiful. Yeah. I was sad to see him go. He was always fun. But, they, you know, again, another character who was just horribly underused this season. Yeah. It's like it was very intriguing to bring him back that way. He he made a good sort of double act with Russell there when they were together. But Oh, yeah. Fun. But then having him this time was interesting. And actually, any time that he and Sarah had a little bit of byplay, it was fun. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, not enough. Well, the, the other problem too is you can almost argue it's like when when is it too many characters for a show to really tell a decent story? Because well, go no, go ahead. No, I mean because like we talked about Tara. I mean, there's just too much yeah. to juggle. And I also think that they and where, when do you have too many villains? Because I think the governor was great. Yeah. But then to just sort of out of the blue kill him and then say, oh, you know what would be really cool is if Sarah becomes the bad guy. Right. And that was just kind of strange because I thought they were doing some really nice stuff with him. Yeah, I liked him a lot. And they rip his head off. And, they rip his head <laughs> and then she kisses his severed head. Yeah. Oh, and then she tender. kills Karate Kid's girlfriend. Oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, that was one of my favorite sequences, though. It was just her going. I, I, like I said, I have liked her in this one, where it's just like she is so completely insane. 
mm-hmm. and so imbued with the sense of religious superiority that she's doing some of the craziest stuff that we normally see reserved for the vampire characters. That chase and kill was amazing. That was amazing. <laughs> I really did like that. And I read something about that earlier because Anna Camp, who, by the way, I don't know how many listeners will know. I know that my wife think loves, loves, loves the movie. We'll all, we'll, might know Anna Kemp more as um, the leader of the a cappella group in Pitch Perfect, which couldn't be more different from True Blood if it tried. But it's where she's gained quite a bit of uh, notoriety, I guess. And uh, I was reading something about everybody talking about the absolute, just how nuts it was that this supposedly normal woman, but of course she's crazy, is kissing his severed head, you know, (laughs) and uh, she was doing an interview or something right before last week, and she said, oh no, or whatever the the week was where that scene took place, the the killing with the shoe. With the shoe. <laughs> and and she said, oh, no. She said, the best is yet to come for Sarah. She said, the, the biggest, craziest thing Sarah does is coming up next week. And she said it was a huge thing to shoot because uh, she got hurt doing it. And when I oh, saw dear. all the fighting and everything, I thought, yeah, that, they must have let her do a bit of that. And something must have happened. But, yeah, that was just nuts. The tiptoeing across the grate with their high heels. Oh, hysterically funny. It's so, so dark. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And see, I love the way in just one little phrase, actually, I think you just summed up right there exactly why, even at its worst, we we love a show like True Blood. We're attracted to it. And why, even though this season has been one of its worst seasons, what you just said was so hysterically funny and, and so dark. Yeah. It's that mix of being able to simultaneously do some of the most gory, over-the-top violent stuff, and yet do it in a way that also makes you laugh at the same time, while it's not necessarily doing it in a way that's comical. And we've talked already in the show in the past about things like Evil Dead, for instance, where gore is sometimes inadvertently or deliberately played for comedy. There's nothing in the context of True Blood that says that the gory stuff isn't 100% real. Mm-hmm. We're done with the intent of it looking real or as realistic as it can be for what is going on there, vampires killing people. But it's also staged and structured in a way that makes it funny at the same time. Right. That's an incredible balancing act. And I think that's one of the reasons why the show is one of the best shows that has ever attempted to do something like this. One of the only shows that's ever tried to do something like this. I just think that unfortunately you reach a point where – any creative group is probably going to start running out of ideas and running out of steam. And we're probably seeing that happening with this show. Yeah. I think the end is in sight. Yeah. I mean, the only question now is there's this new guy. He ran basically the last half or the last two thirds. I forget exactly this season. Does that mean that going into next year, there's a chance for any kind of renewal of energy or are we really just seeing it wind down? Mm Mm-hmm. And I'd kind of vote for the wind down if for no other reason than I can't imagine them getting much more excitement. After. Yeah, I don't really. You've seen a lot of characters are almost get, getting wrapped up in some ways. Yeah. That you've gone as far as you really can go. Yeah. And uh, maybe it's time to, to, to peck it in. Yeah. And, Bill, and I'd be fine with that. Yeah, I'd be fine with it too. And out of all of them, Bill has changed the most now to something that we absolutely don't even understand or know what the hell's going on. Yeah. So. I don't know where that goes from here, but I'm I'm not sure anywhere satisfying. No, tragically. <laughs> so we end on a sad note <laughs> as we perhaps one year earlier say farewell to True Flood. <laughs> <laughs> 
Ah, well. G2B. All games considered. With news, now we have a press release. Views, the fiction I know is not everyone's cup of tea, but this one is pretty creepy. I like it. Reviews, it doesn't bother me as much because you're not worried about the weapons tables because there aren't any. And interviews, Sean Patrick Fannin. Greg Payline from uh, Microtactics Incorporated. Uh, I'm Andy Chambers with Games Workshop. On Tabletop Games, visit us at agcpodcast.info. That's agcpodcast.info. Well, and since we've been talking about Louisiana and, of course, the supernatural, uh, I did want to touch base a little bit about uh, a recently released uh, role-playing game, tabletop role-playing game for all you gamer fans out there, and that is Deadlands Noir. And a little bit about that, uh, and I don't want to spend a whole ton of time on this, but uh, there was a Kickstarter that Pinnacle did last year to launch a new Deadlands spin-off role-playing game. And a little backstory, Deadlands is pretty much my favorite tabletop role-playing game setting. Uh, it's set in the Weird West, which is the, basically the Wild West where the dead walk and people can cast magic and there are all sorts of steampunky things and there's a super fuel called Ghost Rock that powers all these inventions and it's a crazy mixed up awesome world. Uh, so that's Deadlands. There have been a couple of offshoots of that, uh, and including one that was set in a post-apocalyptic setting called Deadlands Hell on Earth and then one set in another, another planet called Deadlands Lost Colony. Uh, but Deadlands Noir was a, uh, a planned expansion or extension of that universe that would take it into 1930s New Orleans. So uh, kind of really a cool concept, and uh, Pinnacle thought, well, what better way to try to get that off the ground than to do a Kickstarter, which, of course, you know, as we well know, is uh, the way that a lot of companies are going right now. So they set up a Kickstarter last year in May, and their goal was to reach $8,000 to at least help launch the core rulebook for this Deadlands Noir game. And, of course, I supported it. And in, uh, in its 30 days, actually within le- significantly less than that, they made over $117,000. And what's great about it is that uh, unlike a lot of RPGs uh, that you might go pick up uh, in your local game store or online... Uh, this one now has been developed as an, a complete line. So right out of the gate, not only are you getting just uh, a, a core rule book, you're also getting a whole bunch of support material, which is kind of unheard of in the role-playing game community. As I say, typically, uh, if you're buying a role-playing game, you're buying a core rule book, and it could be a year before you see any supplemental material, certainly in print. You might see some stuff as PDF downloads from RPG Now or something like that. But to, to have Deadlands Noir launch with a complete line of support materials that you can go and buy is uh, absolutely unheard of in the gaming industry and gaming community. And I just, uh, I just wanted to talk a little bit about it because I finally got my set of, of goodies a few <laughs> days ago. Uh, there was a big heavy box waiting for me at my door, and I just was going to do a quick rundown so you can hear about how awesome this stuff is. And if it sounds intriguing, know that you can just dive in and start playing with this right out of the gate. Now, so, was this something where you got this as a, as a particular tier of the Kickstarter to get the complete set that you got? Yeah, I mean, you had to support it at a pretty high level, and the level I 
supported at was called the, I think it's called the Seamus level. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I'm looking in the front of the book and seeing my name listed under Seamus. There were a few different tiers. And of course there were the retail tiers where they got, you know, huge selections of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were a few other things like if you pledged at certain levels, they would put your likeness in the book and some of the <laughs> artwork. Uh, nice. there was uh, a, a really high tier where they made you sort of a major character in the storyline. Uh, the only tr- the only drawback to that, as far as I'm concerned, is that a lot of the characters that have been illustrated in the book uh, look like gamers. <laughs> <laughs> they just there are a lot of guys sporting goatees, and, you know, and so I don't know if that was a great idea. I mean, maybe they could have said something like, "Send us a picture, but please, for God's sake, shave off your goatee, or else we're going to remove it." From I, the I would see. I would think the artists could probably manage that without the goatee. So yeah, I think maybe they were just under obligation to. to draw yeah. whatever images they were sent and you know whatever you, I can forgive it yeah. but it would have been a little nicer you know maybe they could have done custom mustaches stuff that seemed a little bit more period but when you're flipping through there it just looks like a gallery of gamers but <laughs> that aside everything else is freaking awesome and uh, actually before I go through the stuff I do want to say that one of the most exciting things about this was that I supported it uh, supported the project right out of the gate and shortly after that I was actually contacted by Shane Hensley the creator of Deadlands and I was brought on board to work as an editor mm-hmm. on the core rulebook so it was kind of funny because of course I I pledged to give them money and then they paid me money so uh, it, all it all balanced, balanced out, out. <laughs> in the end. Uh, but yeah if you if you look in the uh, the title page you'll see I'm listed under proofing and they gave all of us uh, and they gave everybody involved in the project a little uh, nickname so the writer of the, the core rule book, who's John Goff, he's uh, credited as John Night Rain Goff. These are all inside jokes, obviously. Shane the Hack Hensley is uh, <laughs> additional words by, and in my case, I'm Scott Allen Words Woodard. So, <laughs> uh, so yeah, I, I, I edited the uh, the core rule book. So let me just go through what I did get in this box, uh, which I say, which as I said, was a pretty heavy, pretty heavy carton. So you get the core rule book, which is a uh, hardcover rule book full color uh it's got all your stats your character creation stuff it's uh and it runs about uh, let me see 146 148 pages so full color hardcover rule book that's your core book uh you got that and again i'm just listing this primarily not necessarily to illustrate the contents of the support pledge level that i did but just so you know all this material is out there mm-hmm. uh there's also another a second hardcover which is the Deadlands Noir Companion. And in this case, this book is actually bigger than the core rule book. Uh, it's about 208 pages, I think, or 210 pages. Again, full color. And this one uh, not only gives you imp- additional information for playing characters in the Deadlands Noir universe, but it also has details on how you can play in different settings in the universe. The core rule book is set in New Orleans of the 30s, and the uh, expansion, or the companion rather, offers uh, settings of 1927 Chicago, 1939 Shan Fan, which is the Deadlands version of San Francisco, 1946 Lost Angels, and that's the Deadlands version of Los Angeles, obviously, and the 1950 City of Gloom, which is um, Salt Lake City. Uh, and they're all sort of linked in with various stages of noir. In other words, the 40s Los Angeles is, you know, big Hollywood and about movie movie making and things like that. The 1950 Salt Lake City, City of Gloom one uh, has a lot to do with Roswell and alien oh, nice. technology and things like that. So it's really cool how they did that. And of course, the Chicago one is obvious. You know, it's got Capone in there. And in this case, um, this is a slight spoiler, but eh, who cares? Uh, <laughs> Al Capone is actually, um, he's uh, undead. 
Oh. Uh, the, the scars on his Al Capone's face are the scars of when he got killed. So he's actually walking dead. Very nice. Uh, you also got a, a really nice landscape style. If you're a gamer, you'll know what that means. Uh, landscape style screen. And it's one of those, a GM screen. It's one of those really sturdy ones. Uh, it's got your tables and some nice artwork on the outside. And it came with a uh, pretty hefty uh, adventure called the Old Absinthe House Blues, which... Um, trying to see it's got handouts in there again this is all full color as well uh looks like about 32 pages so that came wrapped up together you also got uh, i mean this is a crazy package just it's just amazing it sounds really overwhelming how much material (laughs) you get it's pretty shocking yeah uh you also got five uh individually packaged uh erasable so wet wet or dry erase maps uh, they're double-sided, again, full color. you got a cemetery and crypt. You've got Mississippi bayous, a hotel and a manor, offices, warehouses, and theater. And then a really cool one, which is uh, a map of New Orleans and a Hexaco map of North America. Instead of Texaco, it's Hexaco. <laughs> that's pretty so, cool. So, of course, the logo looks, you know, more like a pentacle. But um, that's pretty brilliant. And those, you can't really put figures on them, but, you know, you can use them in your game and show where people are on the map and that kind of stuff. So that's pretty cool. Uh, you get a set of cardstock uh, figures, which basically you cut these guys out and you can use them as miniatures in your games. Savage Worlds uh, games are pretty miniature heavy, so... Um, but instead of having a bunch of minis that you're going to have to go and buy or paint and and or paint, uh, you now have a, a whole selection of cardstock miniatures. So you can just cut these guys out, fold them, they're trifold, and you've got some figures right out the gate. And speaking of miniatures, Reaper uh, also did a line, small line, of uh, noir miniatures. These are metal minis. They come in a packet. I'm shaking it right there by my mic. And uh, it has, I think, six figures in there, and they're all based on characters from the the core rules you get a double or you again i got uh, a double pack of deadlands noir action decks these are 54 card poker decks uh with different backs they're all aged and kind of stained and looks like they've been through the gutter and they're they're awesome it's all new custom artwork by cheyenne wright uh that's great stuff you got a whole set of uh bennies and bennies are poker chip uh, poker chips that are used in the game. If you know Savage Worlds, you can use these to do re-rolls and things like that. And they are professional clay poker chips. You get a whole set, and they all have custom artwork on both sides. Uh, it's got the uh, Deadlands Noir logo on one side, and then just sort of evocative artwork on the other side. You get a set of dice, custom dice. Uh, it's They're kind of a smoky set of dice, and then they give you one wild die, which is a black, and it's got a smoking gun on the, the six, and the six is important in Savage Worlds games. And you also get, and I think this might be the last thing, uh, you get a really cool uh, metal uh, private investigator badge with a bullet <laughs> hole in it. Wow. And this guy, it's freaking awesome. It says private investigator. It's got like a pyramid with an eye on the top, and it says PI and Nola, of course, on the bottom for New Orleans, Louisiana. Uh, and that gun that was designed by Cheyenne Wright, the, uh, the same artist who did the artwork on the cards and pretty much the artwork in all of the, the Deadlands Noir line. So I think that's it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That is a complete Easy. and total experience of that game all in one box. It's it's pretty shocking. I mean, I'm a big fan of, of their other lines, Pinnacle Entertainment's other lines. Uh, Solomon Kane, The Savage World of Solomon Kane, is another one of my very favorite games that they produced. And they put the core book out for that, and it was months before you saw an, any additional material for it. So to just be able to get all of this stuff 
in one box is just incredible. <laughs> I just I love the fact that they could pull this off. Um, but uh, but yeah. So if you want to do some nice Louisiana-based supernatural gaming, uh, Deadlands Noir is definitely an option for you, which is now out. I think you. I'm not sure if you can actually order the the materials, all the materials yet. I know you can get the PDFs, but they may, it may be a post Gen Con thing. I'm not sure. And as we speak, uh, Gen Con is actually just about to to start this weekend in uh, in Indianapolis. Uh, everybody's on their way there. So, uh, but there you go. So, uh, yeah, if, uh, if you want to do some nice supernatural Louisiana gaming, as I said, uh, Deadlands Noir is a great option. You know, there are other options out there. Why, you know, the, the whole uh, World of Darkness stuff, they had New Orleans, New Orleans supplements, and, and there's other ways you can do it. But uh, this is a great way to just dive right in with all the props and, and supplements that you'll need. Thanks for listening to the G2V Podcast, now part of the Chronic Rift Network at chronicrift.com. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes, and please rate us while you're there. Visit our website at g2vpodcast.com. Join our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter at g2vpodcast. And if you have any comments or questions, send them our way via contact at g2vpodcast.com. Our show music is by Brian Boyko and Frank Nora. 